0: This is Basketball History 101 with
1: Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today we bring you a story of the Cagers. Now, the Cagers were not a team. The word Cagers was used to describe basketball players in the 1920s and 1930s. The name came simply from the fact that many professional basketball leagues had players playing in cages. Now I know that that sounds totally awful, but let me explain. Professional basketball of 100 years ago was a much rougher game than it is today. Now I'm not talking about the time in the late 1980s or the 1990s when the Bad Boy Pistons teams were running roughshod over the rest of the league. The Bad Boys Pistons looked like a bunch of Boy Scouts compared to what basketball looked like in the 1920s. Back then, there were very few rules about contact and what the consequences would be from that contact. If the player with the ball was fouled, he was typically given free throws. But if you fouled a defensive player away from the ball, it just meant losing possession of the ball. Now, Given the fact that there was only one referee, he could not see everything. The referee was usually watching the guy with the ball. Off-the-ball fouls were common and serious. And I am talking about a hard elbow to the ribs or even a punch to the back of the head when the referee was not looking. This kind of thing happened all the time back then. The owners of these teams were okay with that. They liked the extremely rough play. They would even promote the physicality of the game like it was professional wrestling. Fans would buy tickets as much for the fights as they would for the basketball. If you ever see pictures of professional teams from this era, you will notice that many of them are wearing knee pads and elbow pads. They wore that stuff for protection. It was getting to a point where if things did not change, you would not be able to tell a basketball player from an American football player. It really was getting that physical where wearing pads was considered a good idea. There was no such thing as charging back then. Even headbutting was allowed. An offensive player would dribble right down the middle of the court, headbutting every defender on his way in for a layup. It was considered perfectly legal to do so. Some basketball people started discussing the need for helmets. Thankfully, it never got that far. A sports writer by the name of Rod Cooney wrote in 1931 in Sports Story magazine about a dribbler who went in for the headbutt but accidentally headbutted his own teammate who had gotten in his way. The teammate fell back and knocked over another teammate and all three men fell down and turned the ball over. Everyone knew back then that you should never take women or children to a professional basketball game. The game itself was just too rough, and the language was even worse. It was not considered a proper basketball game unless there were a couple of black eyes and broken noses among the players. Another sports writer of that day said that gladiator combats of ancient Rome were insignificant compared to basketball. Cooney wrote in a separate story of a player who started a fistfight with a second player. Well, after the game, that second player's brother broke into the locker room of the first player with a loaded gun and demanded an apology. It was also common for fans sitting courtside to pull the leg hairs of an opposing player or even give them an elbow as they ran by. In some of the worst cases, a fan would burn an opposing player with the tip of his lighted cigarette. Yes, smoking was still allowed indoors back then. Sometimes the arenas would fill up with so much smoke from the thousands of cigarettes being smoked that the fourth quarter was like playing in a fog. Fans sitting at the top of the arena could barely see the ending of most games because the smoke was too thick. Could you imagine a fan in today's NBA arena putting out his cigarette on James Harden's leg as he was about to inbound the ball? That fan would not only go to jail, but probably be banned for life by the NBA. But back in the 1920s, it was just considered a Tuesday. Today, the typical elite basketball player is extremely tall, quick, and uncommonly athletic. Just look at a guy like Giannis Atentankumpo, who was probably the most prototypical basketball player body-wise. But back then, because of the wrestling matches that basketball games turned into, the kind of player that a team wanted looked more like an American football player or a rugby player. You wanted a player who was tough and could handle himself physically. And if he could make a few layups, so much the better. Now if I am not being clear enough, it was absolute chaos during many professional basketball games during the 1920s and 1930s. So somebody came up with an idea to put a cage around the court to separate the players from the fans. This is a good place to take a break and we will be right back with how having the cage changed the way that the game was played.
0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
1: Welcome back to the show, and let us continue with the story. I just shared how the game of basketball became extremely rough and more like tag team wrestling than a basketball game. That created the need for a cage to be placed around the court. The cage was suspended from the ceiling and was lowered to the court for basketball. There were a few different designs for the cages. Some were made of rope or twine and others were made of wire mesh. The cages would make contact with the floor just outside of the baselines and sidelines. It gave a player just enough room to stand out of bounds for an inbounds play. The cages had openings near each bench so that players could substitute in and out of the game using the small openings. That was when you began to see sports writers using the term cagers to refer to basketball players. It kept the fans from interfering with the players. It also kept the players from getting into fights with the fans, which was also very common. Do you remember the malice at the palace when Ron Artest of the Indiana Pacers went into the stands to fight a fan, and then several of his teammates joined in? Well, that kind of thing was common enough in basketball back then, which is why I said previously it was extremely unwise to bring women or children to a basketball game. But the cage presented opportunities for new strategies. If a player was dribbling near the sideline, a defensive player could shove him into the side of the cage, and as long as the player did not completely fall over, there was no foul. It was simply play on. Players that were away from the ball would often push their man against the cage, causing rope burns or a series of small cuts from the wire mesh cages. In other words, the cage became a weapon for both teams, and they could use them against each other. In many ways, the physicality and fighting between the players got even worse once the cage was introduced. The game started to resemble a street fight between gangs with a few layups and free throws thrown in. By the time the 1940s rolled around, owners began to clean up the game. Rules were made that limited the number and severity of fouls. Fouls away from the ball would result in free throws, thereby reducing the number of overall fouls. Fighting and other severe fouls would result in ejections from the game and possible suspensions. The new rules incentivized playing the game cleanly, or at least it led to mostly clean play. Even fans were encouraged to stay out of the game or else they could be kicked out of the arena or sometimes the opposing team would be given free throws. So it made sense for the fans to just stay in their seats. With the fouling and the street fighting mentality taken away, it was time to get rid of the cages because they were no longer necessary. The game atmosphere became more family friendly and the owners began promoting the games as family entertainment. After all, if you really wanted to make money, as the owners definitely did, then you wanted everybody to be able to come to the game, not just the men. Although smoking was still allowed in the arenas for nearly 40 more years. It also changed the way that the basketball players looked. It did not make sense anymore just to sign a bunch of bruisers who were mediocre basketball players. The priority became one of finding the tallest and most athletic players that you could find to be on your team. Now a team owner wanted players who could actually play basketball. Even though the actual cages disappeared by the beginning of the 1940s, the term cagers, Willis Reed, Wes Unsell, Bill Walton, and Robert Parrish, just to name most of them. This is how important pivot play began. It all started with Dutch Denner. It was not until the 1990s when the Chicago Bulls won six championships without a dominant center. But even then, it did not mean that the pivot was abandoned. If you watch some of those old Bulls games, often Michael Jordan would go into the post himself and become the pivot man. He would either beat his man one-on-one or find the open cutter for an easy layup. So the pivot was still a great weapon, but Phil Jackson, the coach of those Bulls teams, and his primary assistant, Tex Winter, figured out a way to use their guards in the pivot. But it planted the seed in people's minds that it was possible to win without that dominant big man playing the pivot. There were other ways to do it. But just to be as clear as possible, the 1990s and the 2000s still saw dominant big men like Akima Olajuwon, Shaquille O'Neal, and David Robinson leading teams to championships, using a traditional big man in the post. The pivot opens up new angles for cutting and passing that has been used consistently for the last 100 years of the game. As Michael Jordan proved, teams no longer needed a Hall of Fame player at the center position, but that is when the coach could get creative and use other players in the pivot in order to create those passing lanes. But back to Dutch Dennard. once Dennard retired from playing, he went into coaching, where he continued to refine his pivot approach to playing basketball. He coached the Detroit Eagles, Sheboygan Redskins of the old NBL, and the Cleveland Rebels of the modern NBA. He influenced basketball to an incredible degree and really is the father of the modern pivot play action. He laid the foundation for how basketball is played. Of course, over the years, other coaches have taken the concept of the pivot and taken it to even new heights. But it started with Dutch Denner, and we should never forget that. He retired from coaching with the conclusion of the very first season of the NBA. The Cleveland Rebels only played that very first season and then went out of business, which means that everyone on that team was out of a job. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1969, and he passed away on April 20th, 1979, at the age of 81. His contribution to the game cannot be understated. He was truly one of the giants of basketball, not just as a player, but for how he pushed and developed the game itself. Well, that is all for today. That is the story of Dutch Denner. Join us next time when we share the story of Kevin McHale, one of the greatest Boston Celtics of all time. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to SportsHistoryNetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go ahead and give us a rating and a review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There, you will find shorter historical posts as well as discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Lewiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon.